I'm Poet Gold. Thank you for having me here today to honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I give you freedom is a birthright. Freedom in America. I said freedom in America is based on economics when it should be based on a birthright. It takes America a long time to find its moral compass because it's too busy being an accomplice to fear and greed. I heard Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. say, I have a dream. And when his lips moved, I believed. Turning the faded pages of an old life magazine, I saw folks who looked like my mama being hosed down on the streets. I couldn't quite grasp the pain of it all, but now I'm living through the strain of it all. From Emmett Lewis Till, Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, George Floyd. The terrorist no longer wears white sheets. Today sleaze is by arrogantly amongst us in broad daylight, cloaked by our disengagement, still building institutionalized discrimination, undermining the power of the people of our great nation. Freedom in America is based on economics when it should be based on a birthright. No child is born who says, when I grow up, I want to be a drug dealer. No child is born who says, when I grow up, I want to be a meth or a crackhead. No child is born who says, when I grow up, I want to be a gang banger. No baby girl is born who says, when I grow up, I want to sell my body to pay for my education. The incarceration of dreams, so many with promise, whose minds have become shackled by invisible chains. Steel door shut, lock, throw away the key. I'm still fighting to be free. The NRA has a hold on we. Semi-automatic spray blood on the concrete, backdoor policies to boost private economy. It's blatant, not a conspiracy. They say there's more murder than dead in Chicago than Afghanistan, but we don't want to see in our so-called civilized society that there are citizens still fighting to be free, fighting to be free, fighting to be free, fighting to be free for basic necessities, food, shelter, education, and jobs. This is the day, like the photos of Leonard Freed, who captured champions 1963, the images and faces of those who still inspire me to march, to march, to march. For if there's going to be a dominant race, then let it be the human race, a race not enslaved by inequities and indignities, a human race of all people, all genders, all sexual orientations, whose spirit rises like the sun, vibrant, beautiful, brilliant, and sets peacefully at night. A human race that understands one man's loss is not another man's gain. I heard Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. say, I have a dream, and I believed. So the march goes on, because freedom I said, freedom is a birthright that should never be based on economics. Thank you. Poet Gold, everybody. Just incredible. Uh, so before we jump in, it is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. 
And I uh, just wanted to say a couple words because I'm sure most of us on social media are going to see lots of posts and quotes over the next couple days. We're going to see posts and quotes that are what I've kind of come to refer to as some of King's greatest hits, right? The stuff that everybody knows, the stuff we can all quote. What often gets overlooked uh, and missed are the deep cuts. Um, and that is because the deep cuts challenge us. Uh, and they challenge the kind of society we lived in and live in, the kind of culture we created and the kind of culture we're perpetuating. Um, and so just a couple of encouragements as we lean in to this weekend. One is to not just read the greatest hits. Um, actually buy one of Dr. King's books and read it and let it, let's let it make us really uncomfortable. Some of the things he said are still challenging and, and, and provocative uh, and are poking and prodding at the way we've organized our society and, and the stuff that we just believe has to be the way it is because it's always been how it is. And let's remember that the dream he talked about is still unfulfilled. That sure, we've made progress, but as long as we live in a society where people like Kenan Anderson if you saw the news this week, a 31-year-old African-American male who flagged down police for help after an auto accident and ended up being tased to, into cardiac arrest and death. That as long as that happens in our world, the dream is not fulfilled. You know, if you were to go back and look at polls about how people felt about Dr. King in his life, um, his polls, to use language that our politicians use, they were underwater. His favorable rating was not super high, but now it's near 100%. How does that happen? I think it can be answered by this poem by Carl Wendell Hines. Many of you may have heard it. It's called, Now That He Is Safely Dead. Now that he is safely dead, let us praise him. Build monuments to his glory. Sing hosannas to his name. Dead men make such convenient heroes. They cannot rise to challenge the images we would fashion from their lives. And besides, it is easier to build monuments than to make a better world. And so as we move into this weekend, as we lean into this weekend, consider engaging with King's work. Not, not just the popular, well-known quotes. Consider reading about what he said about capitalism. Consider reading what he said about war and poverty um, and how they work together to further oppress and harm. Consider his critique of our nation that is still as valid today as the days in which he wrote it and spoke it. Because that's how you honor Dr. King. Not by just spouting and typing the hits, but it's by wrestling with the deep cuts. So let's take just a moment. I thought maybe we should just offer a prayer um, for us, for our country, because we still have so far to go. Are you with me? Let's pray. God, as we reflect on the life of a, a great human and an American hero who was taken from our world and from our country far, far, far too soon, may we allow his life, yes, to inspire us, to encourage us, but may we also allow his life and work as it echoes and reverberates through our history, may we allow it to challenge us, to convict us, to make us uncomfortable. May we allow it to call us into that space called repentance, which is not just feeling sorry, but which is changing our minds, changing our hearts, living differently. Give us eyes to see the hold white supremacy still has on us, on our systems and institutions, 
Give us the courage to do the hard work of dismantling it in us and dismantling it in the world around us. We are grateful for Dr. King, for his life, for his witness, for all that he sacrificed and paid to help this country as unjust as it has been to move forward. We are grateful for him and for all those who stood with him, marched with him, and still do. We offer this in gratitude, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. So we started a series last week called Epiphany, Learning to See Differently. Uh, And what we're doing in this series, last week I just shared some stories from the Bible that were epiphany stories. Uh, This is sort of those aha moments. We talked about how we we often have those aha moments. Sometimes it's when you're driving in your car. Sometimes it's when you're washing the dishes. Sometimes it's when you're just, sometimes it's in the most mundane of moments that that the aha moments just interrupt our lives. And it's maybe it's something you've been wrestling with for a while or thinking about for a while, or maybe it's a joke somebody told you six months ago and it's just been a slow burn. And suddenly one day you're like, that's brilliant. And you laugh. Right, it's, it's these moments of, of sort of just having the light turned on, the light bulb switches on. It's when we begin to see things a little bit differently. Somebody sent me this week a cartoon I thought I'd share it with you. If you can't see it, it says breakfast at Epiphanies. And it, <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of humor I am here for. Um, this is what is technically called dad humor. I have no guilt and shame. Um, these eggs are astonishing. It's a caffeine miracle. Now I understand hash browns. Um, that's just great. It's just for me. You're just enjoying it, but I, I'm loving it. Um, so this is an epiphany, right? When, it, when you have these aha moments. I want to go back, and, and today what I'm going to do, over the next few weeks, you're going to hear other voices sharing some of their moments. Today I want to share some of the epiphany moments, the aha moments I've experienced in my life. I'm going to share four because I thought 40 may be just a little too much. Um, so four, but I want to go back before we do to the, one of the stories we looked at last week, which is a story about a man named Jacob who was sort of on the run. He had um, kind of messed over his brother and his brother wanted to kill him. And so he was getting, you know, out of town. And in between, when he was in between where he was from and where he was going, he got tired and he went to sleep and he had a dream and he had this vision of a staircase reaching the heavens and God was there and God made promises to Jacob that wherever you go, I'll go and I'll be with you, which was sort of groundbreaking within human history, this idea that a deity could go with you, that you weren't just, deities weren't just locked to geography, but this God would somehow go with Jacob. And he woke up and he had this epiphany moment where he said, God was in this place and I just didn't know it. I want to look at what he did next real quick, because what he does next for, for us in the modern world may seem a little, a little confusing. So Jacob has this dream. He, he's completely blown away that God was with him all the time, that God was in the place all the time. He didn't know it. And then Genesis 8, 28, 18. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. How many of you have ever done that? You just had this moment that was like, ah, and your first impulse was somebody get me a rock and some vegetable oil, right? Because we're gonna, I'm going to do a thing. To us, this may seem a little, little odd, but in the ancient world, they had this understanding that when significant moments happen, they need to be marked somehow. We need to pause and acknowledge something significant, something sacred, something transformative, something out of the norm happened 
here and I don't want to forget it. And I actually want to leave it so that as people come by and they see this, they're not going to know what happened, but they're going to know at this place, something significant transpired. And so Jacob does what they did in the ancient world. He sets up a stone, he pours some oil over it as a kind of offering, and he allows it to become this monument, this moment, acknowledging that in this spot, something significant happened. This is not the only place it happens. In Joshua chapter four, after uh, the people cross the Jordan River, they're instructed to go into the Jordan and choose 12 stones and stack them on top of one another as a way of leaving a, a moment, a monument, a thing that acknowledges that something significant happened here. Stones are a reminder for those who've experienced it when they pass back by. Yes, that's the moment. That's where we crossed the river. Yes, that's where I had the dream. Yeah, that's the moment it happened. But it's also for everybody else. They stand as witness that sometimes in the ordinary of our lives, something happens that feels extraordinary. That sometimes in the mundane, the spectacular happens. That often when we're not expecting it, something transformative pops up that we weren't prepared for, but we know it matters. And so we need in some way, shape or form to somehow acknowledge it. Now we do this in the modern world in all sorts of ways, right? Like we find ways of acknowledging things, but I find that sometimes we're so busy and, and we're, we're so kind of just flying at a million miles an hour that often all these things are happening and going by and we don't take time to actually pause and at least acknowledge something significant, something beautiful, something sacred, something difficult, something painful, something transformative happened here. And so kind of what I want to do today is my own version of that, which is to say that there have been moments in my life that I probably should have set up stones and poured some oil on them for, and I really didn't. I just kind of kept going. Um, but I've uh, kind of doing, going back over my life, I realized that those were some really significant moments. And I thought I should just do them by year. Um, so we're going to go 1981 to 2023. No, I'm kidding. It's just four years, four years. I'm going to begin in 1993. It was the year I turned 12. Um, and that year was probably one of the most difficult years of my life uh, and, and still would, would have that top billing on my story. Richard Rohr has said that love and suffering are the great paths for transformation, that either great love or great suffering is what shapes us. In 1992, 1993 was the closest thing I've had to a year of, of suffering and pain in my life. I've been really fortunate and privileged in my life. But 1993 was a rough year. I was 11 going on 12. And that year I experienced two significant losses that absolutely rocked my world. The first was my great grandmother. My great grandma was uh, born in 1919. And um, she, so I lived where we lived. I li we lived in a single wide trailer between my grandparents' house and my great grandmother's house. So my, my pop and his mom, we lived in between them. And so I would wake up in the morning, especially before I started school and I would just disappear in one of those locations. Uh, my great-grandmother was such, uh, just an incredible human being. Um, she played with me as a kid like she was a friend, right? So like you would see her in her 70s, like letting me ride, like she's a horse and I'm riding outside. Like this is the kind of person, she was just this extraordinary grandmother. The first cigarette I ever smoked was at her house. <laughs> I don't think my parents are watching this. The first beer I ever tasted was for cooking at her house. 
Um, the first time I ever tried to shave with a straight razor and cut my own neck was at her house. There weren't a lot of rules at her house. Um, and the truth was, she had a lot of grandkids on um, different sides of the family. I was absolutely her favorite, and they all knew it. I'm not telling you anything she wouldn't have owned up to. I, was, I lived next to her, and from the moment I was in the world, we were inseparable. That year, she passed. And it was, it was kind of sudden. She, she had cancer, and it just, it just happened so fast. Um, and I, I'll never forget that moment, right? Being there, knowing, knowing what I had lost. Then that was in January of 93. And then in July, so 30 years ago, my pop died, her son. He died at 56. Um, he had had all sorts of issues uh, with his health and his life. Uh, from the time he was a small kid, he'd had a really big surgery the year before. It was not a shock anybody who was reading the tea leaves, but it was for me at the age of almost 12 that that year my entire world got uprooted and I had no idea what to do. Um, I, I think that, that lots of the issues I've struggled with into adulthood began that year. Um, like I started getting paranoid that anybody I loved would, would die. And I can remember as a kid, like, like army crawling through the house to go out and like hang out outside my parents' bedroom at night to listen to if they were still breathing, like that level of, and, and where, when I grew up then in Eastern Kentucky, therapy wasn't a thing, right? Like you, you didn't do that. And so I was a 12 year old kid just trying to process what exactly had happened because I was raised under what some people would call a sacred canopy, right? I was raised in sort of, the, the, this is how it all works, that God is deeply involved in every aspect of our life, that God doesn't let anything happen without God controlling it, that if it happens, it's God's will, that if, um, if you pray hard enough, God will do exactly what you've asked God to do. And there was all sorts of scripture to back that up. And, and sort of the unspoken thing was that, you know, if you live a good life, good things happen to you. But if you live a bad life, bad things will happen to you. And suddenly at the age of 12, all of that plausibility structure and all that sacred canopy I lived under, it just collapsed on me. And I can remember being uh, 11 going on 12, sitting at the funeral home and going, yeah, I think God exists, but I think God's a jerk. Anybody else ever been there? Like I, I couldn't go so far at the age of 11 to say there is no God, but whatever God is, God's kind of a jerk because there were lots of bad people in the world and God allowed bad things to happen to the two people I loved more than anything. And if, if I had an epiphany moment that I, when people ask me, when did your faith start to unravel? When did deconstruction begin? I tell them it was when I was 11 and I didn't know it and I didn't have the language and I didn't have any of that. That came later, but I knew at that moment at that moment, that this whole thing is way more complicated than I've ever been told. Way more complicated than I thought. It's not just if you do good, good gets back to you. It's not just, you know, if you pray, God answers. It's not just, like, none of that is how this actually works. And beginning at that age, I could feel the questions and the doubts begin to pop up. And I can remember my mom driving me to school one morning, and talking about God to me and secretly me thinking like, I kind of hate God. And I don't, I don't even know if there is a God, if I want anything to do with God. Anybody ever been there? Which is a scary thought. When you were raised your entire life to believe that if you don't have everything lined up just right, that you're going to be tortured for eternity in hell. 
I actually, from that point on, I struggled to sleep. And it was for several reasons. All this loss, we, we focused a lot on this thing called the rapture. If you don't know what that is, you're blessed and highly favored. Um, <laughs> And the other piece of it was the tradition I grew up in early on before we went liberal. We went liberal after my pop died, became Southern Baptist. But before that, we were free will Baptists and we believed you could lose your salvation like I lose my sunglasses and car keys. Um, so it was sort of like, if you don't have everything lined up just right and you were to die tonight, no matter what you believe or have confessed in the past, if you die with some unconfessed sin, you're going to be tortured forever. And so I developed really terrible sleep patterns that went on into adulthood. I literally was sitting across from a sleep doctor two years ago, I think, and I'm describing why I'm on sleep medication. I'm not anymore, thankfully, but I was on sleep medication, a prescription. I was taking lots of melatonin. I was just like pumping my body with things at night to try to make me go to sleep. And I'd still sit up for hours. And so the doctor's like, why do you think that is? And I was like, let me tell you. And I start listing. And at the end, he's like, like, that'll do it. <laughs> Literally what he says to me, yeah, that, that'll, that'll do it. What I learned at 12 is that this whole thing, which was given to me in very simplistic form, it's way more complicated than I thought. And the problem with that is once you begin to see it, you can't unsee it. Once you pull back the curtain and realize that the great and powerful Oz is just kind of a dude back there, it loses some of the mystique, right? It loses some of the fear and control over you. And, and so I, I began to just wrestle with the questions, with the doubts, with the wonder. And that happened, and it happened as I grew. And we switched churches. I think my parents had this sense they were losing me. And so we went to a church with a really active youth group where they went, you know, indoctrinated me pretty fully and completely and messed a lot of things up um, um, psychologically in that process. But when I was probably, you know, 16, 17, I gave my first sermon. And I remember giving my first sermon because somebody asked me to. And I was an introvert kind of and shy kid and didn't want to be in front of people. But I was also a people pleaser, which was a really hard thing. Like, how do I protect my introvertedness, but also do what everybody wants me to do? And I gave this sermon and something at that moment, it was an 11-minute sermon on John 3.16 that I no longer stand behind. Um, but I gave this sermon, I just had this thought like, oh, I don't know what that was, but I'd like to do it again. And as I started doing it, what I began to realize is I'm gonna have to say a lot of things that I don't like. Like I was saying things in sermon because I believed they were true, but I thought they were awful. I was doing some of the very things to other people that had been done to me. Fear, shame, guilt, judgment, just heaping it on them, all the while internally wrestling with how is this good news? It seems like it's just scaring people, harming people. Like I, I didn't have the language, but I knew that something is off. Like I can't quite get it. And then we come to story number two, 1999. Fall of 99, I was a freshman in college at Pikeville College. It's now called U-Pike, University of Pikeville. And I decided to take a religion class at university. I had been warned by so many people not to take religion classes at university because it's a slippery slope. It will wreck, anybody else told that? It will wreck your faith. But I was the preacher boy. Nothing will wreck my faith. I'm going to go in and wreck the professor's faith. And so I, I, I go into this class and I sit down and in walks this professor who was a con con conglomeration of things I had never encountered before. A woman 
I'd encountered them. Actively tried to encounter them. Uh, a, a woman who was also a pastor, who was also now my college professor in Hebrew Bible. And I just remember going, I've got a lot of work to do here. Like she doesn't know that she can't do this. Like this is not what the Bible teaches. And so I go in with my self-righteous arrogance and then she starts talking and we have this textbook and I'm reading the textbook and I'm reading the Bible in class and something begins to happen in that class where what she is saying begins to drown out all the other stuff I'd heard. And what she's saying actually makes sense because I'm actually reading the Bible, which most Christians never do, although they have strong opinions about it. And I'm actually reading the text and realizing, oh, the, the first five books are made up of all these sources and you can see it. And oh yeah, it makes sense why the book of Jonah probably isn't literal, duh. And all of this other stuff that's happening in this class. And I start to realize I am in the biggest trouble ever <laughs> because I am on the preaching circuit and I'm getting invited to church after church after church to go give three points in a poem. And this whole thing is way more interesting than I imagined. And the worst thing that can happen when you have your theology all lined up and everything, every I is dotted, every T is crossed, everything, there are no questions without answers. I mean, I grew up being told, you can ask questions as long as you accept our answers. But suddenly the answers were no longer satisfying because I had actually been taught the Bible from a strong, brilliant, pastoral woman. And all of the certainty that I'd been trying to rebuild, all the stuff I had, begin, I've got a problem with that, but it's just true. I began to realize maybe it's not how it is. And then I took a New Testament class taught by somebody who wasn't a Christian. <laughs> and he helped me meet Jesus in the New Testament in a way that no pastor, no preaching, no sermon, no Max Licato book had ever been able to do. And I was just wrestling with, I'm getting to know the Bible better and better. I'm getting to know the traditions behind the Bible better and better. It seems like that's a thing a Christian should, especially a Christian who wants to be a Christian leader, like a pastor, like you should get to know the Bible and the culture that produced the Bible and the questions around the Bible and the context around the Bible. And the more I did that, the more all the things I'd been saying and all the things that had been said to me no longer added up because this thing is way more interesting than I thought. Some of my friends were going out to clubs. I was sitting up at night reading the Bible going, <gasps> turns out if you take it to a club with you, it's not as interesting for other people. They don't, it's not cool. They're like, put the Bible away, man. We're trying to dance and drink. Let's put the Bible away. Um, but but it, it sparked, like I was doing all the things, but I wasn't interested in it. I was doing it because I seem to have a knack for talking to people. At least I'm I, I a maybe one trick pony in the world. Like, you know, people who are like super talented, like they can do a lot of things. I'm not that person. I'm a person who does, I feel like often I'm like Liam Neeson from Taken. I have a very small set of skills. <laughs> They're not often transferable to anything else. Um, and, and so it's not like, like, I was such an unmotivated student. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I, I, it just dawned on me one day that there's something happening after college. I should probably think about it. Um, but I knew that whatever this was, I'm super interested in this. 
And when I would start to talk to people about it in certain contexts, I realized, oh, they're super interested in this. They never saw this before. Now, in other contexts, if I would say, hey, did you know this? People started putting up barriers and shields and they seemed to be upset and angry, but there were a small group of people who I would find who were, you know, we would read this stuff and talk about this stuff together and we were super interested. And this whole thing was just way more interesting. So, you know, they were right. It was a slippery slope. Totally right. It wrecked my faith in every way imaginable. But what they don't tell you about the slippery slope often is that it's like putting a big tarp in your yard and covering it with Dawn dish detergent. I don't care how old you are, it's gonna hurt, but you're gonna love it. It's exciting to slide down a tarp at 300 miles an hour. It's exhilarating and terrifying. And that's what that experience was for me. And so years later in like 2015, I was teaching a Hebrew Bible class at a public university and I saw me walk in the room. This kid was me in 1999 and I thought, I know exactly how this is going to go. And, and I watched him struggle and resist and push back. And I also watched the light start to come on for him. I watched his aha moments starting to pop up. And he started having all these interesting questions that I'd had. And I thought, oh, I got to ruin somebody else's faith the way she ruined mine. What a gift. What a gift. I hope he ruins somebody else's. Because here's the thing, an unquestioned faith needs to be ruined. It is not serving anyone well. It is not bringing peace to the holder, even though it feels like peace. It is not improving the world. An unquestioned faith really isn't worth holding. So this whole thing is way more interesting than I imagined. And then 10 years later, the year 2009, something, I'm gonna cry talking about this, something else happened. Richard Rohr says, two things bring transformation, great suffering and great love. And in 2009, what is happening? This did not happen before 2009. I was dead inside and proud of it. What happened in 2009 is my oldest child was born. Yeah, yeah. And he's, I'm literally sitting in a Starbucks drinking a latte and I get a phone call that says, hey, how would you like to become a dad today? It's like, I'm pretty sure there's more notice than this, but there wasn't. And that afternoon we were at the hospital holding our brand new baby boy, and he was gorgeous and tiny. And I just remember being so terrible. His legs were just like this. He was like six pounds. And I just remember being like, I'm going to break him. I cannot hold this child. I will break him, but I got over that pretty quickly. And I just held this baby. And here's what happened for me. In that 10-year period, a lot of theology had begun to fall off for me. I stopped believing in hell. Shh, don't tell anybody. I stopped believing in hell. I stopped believing that there was this God who would arbitrarily just say, you know what? You lived 60 years, you didn't get it right. Boom, smoking section. I just couldn't believe in that anymore. No longer made sense for me. It just seemed like that, that, that God I just didn't like when I was 12 years old. I couldn't buy that God anymore. But there was a piece of theology that had not fallen apart for me yet. And that was this idea of original sin, right? This idea that we are all born broken and sinful and unworthy and that we somehow need something to happen for God to be, like God can't even be near us that God can't hear us, that we, are, we enter this world and we are just one big problem for God and that God needs something to suffer and die in order to make us not a problem for God. And, and then in 2009, this baby is handed to me and I look at him for the very first time and I realize 
He's perfect. He's not broken. He's demanding. He's incontinent. He's not broken. He's not flawed. He's not sinful. I can't imagine him being born and me saying, listen, before I can actually hold him, acknowledge him, something's got to die. My honor has been besmirched by his very existence. That makes sense in a feudal society. But it's not feudal times anymore. And I've come to see the Christian tradition, the Christian faith. It should be. What we've turned it into is sort of a construction site where we're building things and we're putting things in cement and concrete and we're making sure it's really firm and sturdy and that nothing will blow it down. When in reality, what it needs to be is a laboratory where we're testing hypotheses, where we're seeing how does all this stuff work together. And we, we run an experiment and we're like, oh, that doesn't lead to human flourishing, so that's out. And we run another experiment, like that seems to get us a little closer. Will we ever, will we ever move beyond this? Probably. How many of you remember holding the first iPhone you ever had? How many of you ever thought, what kind of sorcery is this? <laughs> Could you imagine if you had a time machine, you went back 100 years and you showed our ancestors, this is an iPhone they would not know what to do with you. And I remember getting my first iPod and thinking, this is the height and pinnacle of technology. We will never, going to the moon is nothing. This is it. And then they combined it all and you can surf it. I'm not trying to get you to buy a phone. I'm just saying, can you imagine if somebody ever created something really innovative and interesting and they said, this is far enough. Imagine if they just came up with treatments for a disease and stopped trying to find a cure. That's what we've done in the Christian tradition. We've come up with some pretty good ideas and then we've tried to ensconce them in concrete instead of saying, this works for now, but we're gonna get better data. And when we get better data, we're gonna run this test again. And if this doesn't work, we gotta let it go. Friends, that is what a reformation is called. And the slogan of the reformation was always reforming. But we have placed such an asterisk beside that that says, not really. I remember being in ministry at like 18. And it was a time when something was going on in the Southern Baptist Church called the Worship Wars, where we were arguing about whether or not we could have drums and keyboards and guitars in church. And I remember just thinking, and one of the things we would say to calm everybody down is, oh, no, 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 we're not changing the message, we're changing the method. One day it dawned on me, I think the message has been the problem. I think the message has been the problem. It's like the structure of the house is falling down and we're trying like, we need new carpet. And the reason is it was never intended to just be passed down with no alterations. It was intended to be reformed, reimagined, reframed, reclaimed. That's been the whole thing all along. And when I held that baby in my arms for the first time, original sin was out the door. And I realized we are born with original goodness and original blessing, we are born inherently united with God. And that is how this story begins with good news. It does not begin with our separation and our sinfulness and our brokenness and that we are a problem for God. It begins with this announcement that we, just like Jesus had this epiphany experience at his baptism where he's told, you are the beloved son with you, God is, finds great happiness. Every time a human being comes into the world, the divine announces, you are my beloved son, you're my beloved child, with you, in you, 
because of you, I find great joy. I'm just gonna tell you, if God is not a better parent than I am, God needs to retire and turn it over to somebody who is. But I just believe that whatever God is and whatever that mystery, that word points to, whatever that is, is the infinitely good that sees the good in each one of us. And that throughout our life, what we are given is a sense of self. We're given, we are born into estrangement because the moment we get old enough to listen, people start telling us we're separated from God. Instead of reminding us exactly who we are, we are a child of God. And what I learned holding that baby boy for the very first time is this whole thing is way more beautiful than I was told. There was a reason I walked around most of my life feeling like this is good news, how? Because it wasn't good news. It was news, bad news, dehumanizing news, traumatizing news, wasn't gospel. And holding that small little human, I realized that maybe just maybe whatever God is, that that is how God sees us the whole time. And that as we begin to grow, the truth is we're not broken, we're just in process. Anybody ever seen a, a baby and think, you know, the fact that they can't feed themselves, use the bathroom in an appropriate way, what's wrong with them? No, they're just in process. They start to learn. They start to become more independent. They grow, they pick up skills. They start talking back to you. They start thinking you're not cool. This is now therapy. They start thinking you're not cool. And all of that is a natural part of the process. They don't get it all right. Same way you and I don't get it all right because they're growing and they're learning and they're changing. And so are you and I. You are not broken. You are not messed up. You are in process. And some of the things that have happened in your life have made that process for you more challenging. Absolutely. But they are not who you are. And they do not define you to God and they do not define your worth and they do not define your value. You are a child of God, beloved. Amen. Regardless of what anybody else has said about you or over you, the first thing spoken over you was your goodness. And that doesn't change. Last story, 2021. In the middle of a pandemic, Nathaniel, who's here, where are you, Nathaniel? Are you around somewhere? Nathaniel, who's here this morning, Nathaniel was on our staff and... Um, I get a text from Nathaniel. He's like, I think we got some mail for you. I was like, oh, this is gonna be good. And he sends me a screenshot of this letter that I got from the church that I'd grown up in, the church I was called to preach in, preach my first sermon in, the church that ordained me when I was 20 years old to be a pastor. And you have to understand in you know, 20 years, I, I'd kind of, I didn't see that ordination as valid, especially with all the stuff I've been saying and doing. I, 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 I didn't assume they would stand by it, but I get this letter that says, you know, because, you, because of your views on the Bible, the fact that you don't care about it, essentially, because of your stances on certain issues, as a church, we have voted to rescind your ordination and you're no longer ordained in our church. And that wasn't the big deal. I didn't consider it anyway, but I looked at the names on the list and there were people that I had known my entire life almost. There were people I'd served with. There were people I'd baptized on that list. Not a phone call, they didn't reach out. There was none of that. There was just this, they had a whole meeting about me and, and had decided that 
they would have to distance themselves from me. It was kind of like losing your hometown a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, like kind of like losing this thing that had been foundational in your life. And what that taught me is as I thought back and looked at everywhere I had been uh, in ministry in the past 20 plus years, and I began to realize that whatever they thought they were taking away, they actually weren't taking anything away. Allow me to look back and realize that, that I had been on this very generous, compassionate journey where I had taken two steps forward and one step back sometimes. But as I looked over it, I began to realize this whole thing gets way better. Because I can remember being in the throes of deconstruction at 23 years old, pastoring a church, getting up and just thinking, how do I say something that doesn't go again? How do I say something I believe in that it's okay to say to these folks? Right? And, and when somebody asks a question like, do you, do you believe that Jesus had to die for us? And you're like, look, kid's a deer. And you run away because you don't want to answer the question. Um, but there had been all these years where I had agonized and I'd been in such frustration and I'd worried about a paycheck and how I was going to help feed my family because if I say what I think, I'm in big trouble. If I say what I think about, um, about Christianity as a whole, if I say what I think about LGBTQ plus inclusion, if I say what I think about the Bible, if I say what I think about the cross, if I say what I think about anything, I am going to lose my job. And then I started noticing over time little sparks of of, of what might be considered courage, but were really probably just desperation, where I started saying little things and I started being more honest and people left and then people came and I started just being more open about this is who I am and this is what I believe and this is how I actually think this can be good news and all sorts of things happened and it wasn't really easy and I'll save you a couple decades and it was really, really difficult and also it's been really, really rewarding and I look back over it and I realize this whole thing gets way better than I dreamed it would. 20 years ago, if I'd gotten that letter in the mail, it would have crushed me. And I would have thought, I, and now I have to be quiet. And now I realize, oh, they think I'm breaking the rules of tennis, but I'm actually playing golf. And this thing gets way better than I dreamed. I talked to pastors and Christians a lot who were in settings like where I was at those points, who are just wondering if they'll ever be able to be honest and say what they believe with. And one of the things I tell them are people who are right in, the, right in the beginning or middle, the really dark, difficult days of deconstruction, and they're wondering, does it get any better? And 20 years in, I'm still a deconstructing Christian. But 20 years in, what I can look at them and say is, oh yeah, it does get better. And then it gets worse again. And then it gets better. And then it gets worse again. And then it gets better. But then you realize there are a whole bunch of us who are getting better and worse and better and worse. And then you're not alone and that we really are together and that there are spaces that are safe to do this in. And you realize it gets better than you ever dreamed. I never dreamed I could get in front of a group of people and say, I don't believe in hell anymore. And there wouldn't be torches and pitchforks, for example. But you all didn't bring any today. Thank you. And here's the thing I learned through this too. It is okay to disappoint people for your own flourishing. I've lived a long time thinking, it is, my what, it is my job to appoint these people. I don't know what the opposite of disappoint is, right? Like, it's to keep them happily appointed. That I do the things, that, and I know that, that there are people who look at my life and think, you could have been somebody in the Baptist world. That I've disappointed them. But I feel more grounded 
joyful and alive in my faith than I ever have. And if I had gone that path, I would have made them happy and I would have been miserable. And if you're in this room and you're struggling in your faith, you're wrestling, you're not doing it regardless of what Mark Driscoll says. You're not doing it because you're like, I'm just gonna do this because the other stuff's too hard. You're doing it because it is for your own survival and thriving. And because you are longing for a faith that you can be congruent with in your head and your heart. And that is brave and that is courageous and that is the way of Jesus. It is okay to disappoint other people as you pursue your flourishing. Because what they tell you on an airline, which always I I, I wanna push back on, which is if the oxygen masks deploy, put your own on first. Because how in the world can you help anybody else when you're passed out? And this path for us is putting our oxygen mask on first. So two two things real quick, and then I'm gonna be done. Uh, One is all this for me is realized in hindsight. Right, this stone here, this was my pops. He got this, it's actually a lump of coal. He got this when he retired from the Eastern Coal Corporation um, where we're from. And they put lacquer on it and they gave it to him with his name, uh, Reverend WG, they called him Nuck King. And this sits on my shelf. And for me, this is one of my stones. This is one of the things I build on. That, that now, as I'm hopefully having better eyes to see and ears to hear and heart, and heart that is open, I can see, oh, something big is happening. I need to revisit it. I need to lay another stone on that. But at the time, I didn't. All the stories I'm sharing with you now, I really began to realize in hindsight. It took a little time. It took experience. It took the benefit of a little healing. It took the benefit of being able to look in the rearview mirror and see something a bit clearer. So if you don't walk around all the time going, the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it, that's okay. Because I did it not in 1993, but like in 2015, right? Like it took some time. Hindsight is your friend in these moments. The important thing is to be able to go back over your life and your experiences and to begin to realize some things have happened that I just wasn't aware of it. And the second thing is this. This really is a journey, y'all. It really is a journey. It is not a place where you arrive overnight. It's not a place where you get there quickly. It is a journey. I'll never forget being at Wild Goose Fest several years ago. And I just finished the talk on something and a a woman comes up to me and she's in tears. And she says, I'm trying to deconstruct my faith. I'm in the middle of it and I'm so confused. And I just, uh, just, uh, there are all these scriptures I can't get past. And so she starts listing them and asking me to like respond to each scripture. And I, I just listened to her and then I said, hey, look, can I just say one thing? You don't need anybody's permission to go through this process. Um, But if you need somebody's permission, it's okay for it to take you some time. You don't have to be a fully deconstructed Christian by the end of Wild Goose. It may take years and that's okay. It's okay. Your journey is your journey. Mary Oliver says, things take the time they take. Of course they do. Of course they do. Our kids don't start running overnight. They crawl first. They're wobbly, they're uncertain, and then they run and they do not stop. It's a journey. Beware of anybody who's fully deconstructed, by the way. The chances are they're creating a new fundamentalism. Because fully deconstructed is not a category. It gets better, it gets worse. You feel you have answers, you have new questions. That is how it works. That is the cycle, that is the rhythm, that is how it works. Beware of the arrived. 
who now want to tell you to, be, to arrive and how quickly you should get there. This journey is yours. This journey has been mine. And there are moments in that journey where I just thought, it's over. I can't keep going. I'm going to do something else. Oh, I'm a, pretty much a one-trick pony. I'm going to have to do this, but I don't like it. Right? All of those moments. It gets better. It gets better. It gets better. Thank you.